The Old Testament scripture reading for today is taken from Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, and it's on page 430 to 431 in your pew Bible. <clears throat> the words of, Me- of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, one of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped the captivity, and about Jerusalem. And they replied, The survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept, and mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for your servants and the people of Israel confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place at which I have chosen to establish my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. At that time, I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Our scripture reading for today and for the next several weeks, in fact, all the way through November, Uh, It's from the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah, but uh, I don't want to neglect the New Testament, Uh, and so uh, today I'm going to read uh, just a couple of verses from Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, These uh, New Testament lessons, both today and in the weeks to come, are not just illustrations of uh, what we find in the book of Nehemiah, but I I hope that they're demonstrations uh, that these are uh, themes in all of Scripture. Uh, We're not just going to focus on an isolated teaching in Scripture, but we're going to focus on a a theme that's found uh, throughout Scripture. So uh, Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 20, and uh, Paul is writing here about Abraham, but he could just as well be writing about Nehemiah uh, or uh, any other servant of God, past uh, and present. Listen uh, for these words. No No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, 
being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, I want to begin today with a a story. Uh, I grew up, as uh, I've told you uh, several times in the past, in in what was a decidedly Christian world. Uh, And if you are from other parts of the world, uh, what I'm about to say may uh, be hard to imagine, but the world of my childhood, uh, and I'm thinking about the 1950s, if you can imagine back that far, in the 1960s, I mean, we're very, very Christian where I live. So everyone I knew was uh, a Christian, and if uh, you weren't a Christian, then you would keep that information to yourself. Uh, So very different, I realize, from uh, the world we know today. Uh, In any case, uh, I I had lots of role models uh, in my life. Uh, Just about everybody I knew, carpenters and plumbers and uh, police and firefighters, uh, CEOs, everybody I knew uh, was uh, a Christian. And uh, these people provided uh, role models uh, to me, not only uh, in their faith at home, but in their work lives and and so on. Well, one of those role models was uh, a man named Max Dupree, uh, who died last month at the uh, age of 93. Uh, The news in in my hometown last month was filled for days uh, with stories about uh, this man and uh, also thanksgiving for his remarkable life. Uh, For many years, Max Dupree was the CEO and and chairman of the board uh, of an office furniture company called Herman Miller, uh, a company with a global reach and several hundred million U.S. dollars in in, uh, revenue every year. And if you don't have any uh, Herman Miller office furniture at home, maybe you have one of those famous uh, Aeron chairs uh, designed by uh, Charles and and Ray Ames. Those chairs can be found in museums of contemporary art around the world. My parents had one, and looking back, I didn't treat it as a museum piece, uh, 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 but that's what it was. Well, just about everybody in my world knew Max Dupree, and quite a few people in my hometown worked for Max Dupree. Uh, Today, uh, companies in Silicon Valley, California, seem to be the best places to work because of their, I don't know, free childcare and and state-of-the-art fitness centers and health food cafeterias and so on. But back in the day, uh, Herman Miller was thought to be the finest company that it was possible to work for, and and that was for one reason, namely Max Dupree. Uh, Or better yet, because of what Max Dupree stood for. Max Dupree was a a one-of-a-kind leader. Uh, He was so good at leadership, as a matter of fact, that he uh, wrote several books about it. His leadership principles were so admired that Uh, A leadership center was established on the campus of uh, Fuller Theological Seminary in California, where where he was a trustee for many years. Uh, And the story that Max Dupree would tell, and he tells it in his books, and he would speak about this too, I heard him speak about it several times, uh, was about the birth of his granddaughter. For him, this story summarized everything that he believed uh, about leadership. In, In 1988, Max Dupree's daughter gave birth to his granddaughter, uh, but the baby was dangerously premature, 15 or 16 weeks premature. Uh, Medical advances, I know, have been made, and and survival rates have increased dramatically for premature babies. Uh, But 30 years ago, uh, the odds were long that this baby would survive. Uh, The baby was uh, 11 inches long, almost 
28 centimeters uh, long, and, and uh, Max Dupree could easily hold this uh, young life in, in the palm of his hand. Uh, to complicate matters, the father of this uh, baby decided that this was a good time to leave his marriage and, and to uh, leave his new family, so Max Dupree uh, was not only the grandfather, but he became the surrogate father as well. The neonatologist gave this tiny baby uh, a 5 to 10% chance of surviving for three days. And so the neonatologist told Max Dupree to uh, speak softly uh, to the baby and, and to use the touch of his finger uh, to stroke and, and uh, stimulate the, this tiny baby girl. Uh, and as he tells the story, he took his uh, wedding ring and, and uh, put it over the fist of this tiny baby and slid that ring all the way up to uh, her shoulder. He marveled at how tiny this, this human being was. Uh, the baby, as you must have guessed by now, I wouldn't be telling the story, I suppose, the baby survived and, and, and Max Dupree's own life was changed forever. And the way he thought about his work was changed forever. Uh, in that hospital nursery, he wept. He prayed as, as he had never prayed before. And he made his granddaughter's survival the number one goal of his life. Uh, there are actually, uh, uh, well, he lived, uh, for most of those first few weeks, he'd never left the, the nursery, and he lived as though nothing else mattered. Uh, if you've heard the story before, then you already know that they named that baby uh, Zoe, uh, a Greek uh, New Testament word for life. And there are actually two different words for uh, life in, in the New Testament. One of them uh, bios or bios is almost always a reference to biological life, uh, but the other word, zoe, is a reference to something more, something spiritual, personal, and eternal. Uh, and, and that was the lesson that Max Dupree said he learned. When we are driven to our knees with nothing but prayer and touch and soft words, it is then that we discover the preciousness of life. Right, the extraordinary gift that it is. The, the story came to mind last week, partly because I, I heard it all again last month in, in the U.S., uh, but also because it fits so well with the person of Nehemiah who is introduced to us in the first chapter of his memoir, which we call the Book of Nehemiah. And as I mentioned last week, I'm going to be looking with you at this book uh, throughout the fall, all the way to Advent, as a matter of fact. And, and, and there's a parallel study in the Adult Education Hour. You're welcome to, to join us there. Where we can look a little bit more deeply at this life than it's possible to look on, uh, on Sunday morning during worship. Uh, Naomi, uh, Nehemiah was an extraordinary leader. And his book is a personal memoir of, of his leadership, and it's told, uh, surprisingly enough, in the first person. I did this, and then I did that. And, and so he tells us everything he did uh, as God instructed him during this time of his life. And if you know little or nothing about Nehemiah, I, I urge you to pay attention. Yes, uh, this is a book about leadership, uh, but anyone who is a mom or a dad uh, anyone who is a grandparent or a Sunday school teacher or a youth group leader or the CEO of, a, of an office furniture company right, can find something of value in this book. 
I'm not going to repeat everything I, I said last week about the historical context of, of Nehemiah's life, but I want to remind you of this much. There, there were several waves of return from uh, where the people were in captivity back to uh, Jerusalem, three that we know about uh, from the Babylonian exile. Uh, the first wave came with Zerubbabel, and uh, that wave uh, came with the purpose of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, and then the next wave came with Ezra, and they went uh, for the purpose of reestablishing uh, Mosaic law. And, and then finally, uh, the civil engineer Nehemiah uh, returned to Jerusalem three, 13 or 14 years after uh, Ezra uh, for the purpose of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Now believe me when I tell you that uh, all three of these leaders had less than thankless tasks. Jerusalem was in uh, terrible shape. It was a a pile of rubble, basically, and the people who who, who lived in the land, these were the poor and the elderly and the disabled who were not carried off into uh, into exile, uh, they were not at all happy to see these Jews returning from Persia 70 years later, wearing their fancy clothes and and their expensive shoes and speaking with their newly acquired accents. Uh, uh, Who did they think they were? You know, coming back and, and, and bossing everyone around. Uh, eventually, and this is a, a spoiler alert, uh, the, the wall of Jerusalem was rebuilt in 52 days, which is nothing less than miraculous, especially when you consider where this story begins. Uh, I want to mention one more piece of information from last time. Nehemiah, as I, I told you last week, had risen within the the Persian government uh, to a very high level, about as high as it's possible to go unless you become the king. Uh, He was uh, one of the most trusted confidants uh, of King Artaxerxes. And the quality of his life, I think we're supposed to imagine this, the quality of his life was very, very good uh, in in terms of material comfort. Uh, Not many people at the peak of their careers and having risen to, to such a high level and being surrounded by so many good things, not many people would ask for a transfer. Right? And a, a, a demotion, really, to a city like Jerusalem. Uh, I have a niece who uh, used to work for the State Department in, in the U.S., the diplomatic arm of, of the government, and she would tell me stories about how people would be offered uh, hardship payments in order to accept postings in, in cities, less than desirable cities around the world. And Jerusalem, it seems to me, would have been one of those cities in the ancient world. Uh, Not many people then or now would be willing to do what Nehemiah did. Uh, We may have romantic images of of Jerusalem in our minds, especially if we've never been there, but the truth is uh, that Jerusalem in the 5th century B.C. was not a very pleasant place to live. Uh, Nehemiah's parents and grandparents probably spoke to him about Jerusalem in glowing terms, all their memories and so on. Uh, But the reality was awful. Terrible. It was definitely a career dead end for Nehemiah. Now I suppose that this is the first sign, the the first indication that we are dealing here with an extraordinary person. I I, I wish the world had more of them. Someone who realizes that having every material blessing uh, isn't nearly as, as good Right? as having the best life possible. Uh, duty, honor, self-sacrifice, using one's gifts in service to others, 
I mean, when did those ideas or, or, or values fall out of favor? Why are we so surprised or shocked when someone says, yeah, yeah, I will take on that difficult and, and, and thankless task because it's the right thing to do? That's Nehemiah. And it could be any, any one of us. And that's the first point I, I want to make today. The way... He offered himself in service. But, but, but the story keeps moving. And, and one of the reasons I like the story uh, so much is that Nehemiah is not a priest. Uh, you kind of expect that uh, uh, priests and uh, pastors too, uh, for that matter, are, are going to be generally good people. You're, you're not surprised when they pray. And, and you're not surprised when they encourage other people to pray. But, but Nehemiah was no priest. He was a career politician. And as we learn uh, uh, later, he was a, a civil engineer. And I like that about him. Maybe you've heard the old uh, expression, uh, he was so heavenly minded that he was of no earthly good. Right? Uh, uh, most pastors today fit in that category. Right? Uh, but that was not Nehemiah. His feet were firmly planted on the ground. So just to illustrate this, when, when Ezra the priests uh, set out for Jerusalem, the king... Uh, offered him uh, a military escort to ensure his safety in his, his journey to Jerusalem. But, but uh, Ezra the priest turned down the offer. and Instead, he said he was going to rely on fasting and, and prayer uh, in order to arrive safely in, in Jerusalem. Well, no one is surprised about that. Uh, I mean, that's what priests do. We, we, we would be troubled if he had accepted a military escort. You know, we, we would have wondered about the strength of his faith. His priestly heart would have seemed less than authentic. Right? Nehemiah, on the other hand, and I, I think this is telling, accepted the offer. This is in chapter 2, verse 9. I'm getting ahead of myself. But uh, it, it, Nehemiah is no fool. Today, we would say he took a reasonable precaution, prayer and a military escort. Now, I, I mentioned that distinction between uh, Ezra and Nehemiah because I want you to see how uh, something changes uh, in Nehemiah. He arrives in Jerusalem, and uh, what does he do? Right? Uh, the story says that he weeps. The, the, the first thing he does is to look around. Uh, the first thing he does is not to look around, begin to work. Right? Uh, the first thing he does is to begin to sob. I don't think I'd ever noticed this before, but uh, I'm wondering if you can think of anyone else who uh, wept over Jerusalem, right? who, who sees the city for the first time, I mean really sees it in, in all of its misery and poverty and need, and, and uh, well, that's Jesus who wept over Jerusalem as well. Nehemiah, and I, I think this is an important foreshadowing or, or, or a pointing forward, uh, Nehemiah shows us what a, a Christ-like figure he's becoming. Uh, Nehemiah was willing to lay down his life in order to protect or save God's people. You can't get more Christ-like than that. Uh, it's a remarkable moment, I think, but Nehemiah's leadership really begins with his tears. A grown man falls to his knees and cries over what he sees. I never went to business school, so I don't know how leadership is, is, is taught these days, but I have read a few books. I have some idea. I don't think crying and sobbing over the work ahead is the first lesson in leadership. And then I think of Max Dupree uh, holding that 
premature baby in, in the palm of, of one hand, and I think of Jesus seeing Jerusalem the week before he dies. I think of Nehemiah, and I think of the countless women and men in history who have seen the work in front of them and wept over it. Not in fear, and, and not uh, in uh, uh, paralysis, you know, uh, but tears of vulnerability and, and tears of passion and tears which represent a, a, a deep love for the people. Nehemiah was, was not sent to do a job, uh, only to walk away when it was finished with a handsome bonus in his pocket and some hardship pay. I mean, he came to invest his life if necessary. He came and, and, and made this work the single focus of his life. If you want to think of other biblical figures who, who lived like Nehemiah, think of the Apostle Paul, who, who threw himself into his work with such little regard for his own safety and, and for his own life that he endured beatings and, and imprisonments and, and shipwrecks and more, all because he was working for a cause greater than himself. John Stott, a Christian leader and an Anglican priest, he died in 2011. John Stott has pointed out that the Apostle Paul dismissed every hardship he faced uh, every imprisonment and every uh, physical injury as, and I'm quoting now, a slight momentary affliction compared to the glory which was to come. Right? Uh, you know, we sometimes do admire cool and, and detached uh, professionalism uh, as, that though, as though that is the highest uh, level to reach in work life. And, and frankly, I've never wanted a doctor to cry before treating me. Right? But, but, but what I do admire is someone who lays down his life for others. I, I would want that uh, for the CEO I work for. Right? I, I would want to follow a savior like that. Right? I, I would follow that savior anywhere. So where does leadership begin? It, it, it begins by recognizing the enormity of the task and and the sacrifice that is going to be required. And I mentioned that Nehemiah uh, rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in 52 days, but uh, he did not arrive and roll up his sleeves and get to work uh, immediately. The story tells us that he arrived, and this is remarkable when you think about it. He spent the next four months in prayer and fasting. Right? And I suppose that's the last point I, I want to make today. This, this prayer of Nehemiah was not a perfunctory prayer. This was not the 30-second prayer that we hear before a meeting begins. This was not the prayer we say at mealtime and we keep it short so the food doesn't get cold. Four months is a long time to spend in prayer and fasting. And again, I can't imagine that this would be taught in business school today. We like firm and decisive leaders, or so we say. I mean, we like leaders who announce it on day one. This is my goal, and this is my vision, and this is what I'm going to do. And Nehemiah is a very different kind of leader. He arrives, and he, he cries. And then he says, I won't do anything until I know that I am firmly in the grip of God. Right? That everything we do, everything, has his blessing. 
Uh, I had lunch one time with a, uh, this was at a previous church, with a, a church member who was being nominated to become an elder. And over lunch, he said something to me that sounded like a, a confession. He, I, I think he was looking for a, uh, an assurance of pardon from me. He said, you know, really, uh, I, I don't have a lot of time for prayer and Bible reading, and I have young children, and I'm in the early stages of my career, and so you know how busy I am in church life. So I mean, my prayer life is not what it, it should be. And <laughs> I think he really wanted me to, uh, to hear me say, oh, you know, that's understandable. I've been there myself. I know how young children can be. Uh, so it gets in the way of a rich devotional life. Don't worry. I forget what I said exactly. I hope it was good. <laughs> but that sort of thinking, that sort of rationalizing is, is not what we read about in Scripture. This is not what the saints who have gone before us have, have told us to do. Martin Luther, the the 15th century reformer, we're going to be hearing a lot about him this this fall, Uh, Martin Luther is is famously remembered for saying, I have so much to do today that I'm going to need to spend three hours in prayer in order to get it all done. (laughs) And we hear that and we think, oh my goodness, how is that even possible? And yet, you know, this is what I, I want you to see the people who have gone before us are, are, are saying to us that it's not only possible, but necessary. How can we get started on any project, and not just the rebuilding of the walls of, of Jerusalem, but any project, any activity, anything we do without taking time for prayer? Uh, Eleven times in 13 chapters. Eleven times Nehemiah tells us that he sought the face of the Lord. This is no accident. This is not an unimportant detail in the story. He is telling us that he was able to accomplish his work precisely because he prayed. I will have more to say about this next week. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the example of Nehemiah. Uh, and all of the women and men who have come after him for their courage and for their vulnerability and for their willingness to lay down their lives if that is what is required. Uh, Move us, we pray, to learn from them and to live as they lived, to trust you as they trusted you. And oh yes, teach us to pray. In Christ's name, amen.